Hello everybody, welcome along to this brand new episode of the Peter Greenwood Show at the Edinburgh Fringe 2021. Some more interviews with Fringe performers coming up for you today. And we are starting with your friend and mine, Mark, from the show Dark Spirits, Black Humour. Let's take a listen, shall we? Let's start asking your name and what you do, please. Hi, my name's Mark Jude Sullivan, and uh, I'm currently working on a play at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. How are you today, Mark? Are you well? I'm doing well, yeah. I'm hanging in there. That's good. <laughs> it's, it's a little on the early side for us out here in Los Angeles, but uh, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, Mark is out in Los Angeles, where at the time of recording, it's 3 p.m. here, but that means it's like 8, 9 o'clock in Los Angeles? Uh, 7, actually. 7, so oh. Right and early, yeah. Well, no, early. No, I'm an I'm a bit of an early riser, so this is um oh this is a, a wonderful way to start the morning. So. That is good. That is good. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about your show. It is called Dark Spirits, Black Humor, A Night of Cocktails and Storytelling. And for this interview, I was considering going out and buying all the ingredients for the drink you make at the start, but I thought three o'clock in the afternoon, maybe it's maybe it's not <laughs> quite right. And also, I am the lightest of lightweights, so even sniffing that first drink, which I won't spoil for the audience, that would make me be like. Yeah, Mark, you're my friend, and I like you. <laughs> you, you, Gisha, Gisha. So let's talk about it. What is Dark Spirits Black Humor? So, uh, thank you for asking. Dark Spirits Black Humor is a solo show that I've developed with our theater company out here in Los Angeles, uh, in-house theater, and we are a site-specific immersive theater company. And uh, I had worked at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival for a few years uh, before, obviously, 2020. And um, we were trying to find a way this year, knowing that uh, things were going to be in a bit of a different capacity. Uh, some things were going to be online. Some things were going to be uh, smaller venues and, and more spacing and things like that. And it, it kind of uh aligned well with this show this idea of maybe doing something online and presenting it to a broader audience than just who you were able to kind of flyer and bring in and and space out in the the venue and uh so we were able to work with this really cool bar down in downtown los angeles called the wolves which is um uh, this gorgeous spot that that takes inspiration from early uh, 1900s Parisian kind of salon style bars. And uh, we decided to build out this show in this space. And so uh, to answer your question, I'm sorry, I'm a bit long winded. No, um, the, you say what you like. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the play starts out as something of a... a, a kind of an inclusive cocktail making demonstration. We've seen a lot of those kinds of things probably online over the past year, year and a half, right? And then uh, it kind of morphs into a more intimate evening in a bar or a pub in which the barman starts telling you stories from their past. And um, the whole idea is to try to build this sense of community that you find in a small bar or on stage and try to recreate that even through kind of an online platform. Yeah, I went to see the show last night and it was all on Zoom and you're talking to us. I don't know what it looks like behind the scenes. I don't know if you have a screen where you can see everybody on Zoom and what that would look like from your point of view. But from the audience's point of view, we're sitting looking at you. We are talking to you. It's a one-way conversation, admittedly, but we are talking to you. 
Yeah, that, and that's what we're we're hoping for the uh, this sense of intimacy and inclusion. Um, well, I can see I can see uh, my buddy Dowd, who is running the camera and uh, is our cinematographer and designer. Uh, his camera, a couple of small lights, and then the computer screen with the faces of the people who are attending. Uh, it's a little bit awkward to reach, so there, as much as possible. It's splitting the difference between looking directly into the camera so that people at home um, get that sense of connection, but then kind of counterintuitively having to look off camera to actually clock the people in the audience um, and be able to incorporate them in the show. So it is, uh, it's not an immediately natural uh, way of performing, but once you kind of find the groove with it, it it feels... um, much more intimate and connected to an audience than a lot of theater that I've done in which the people are only 10 feet away from you. And I have to admit, I, I was watching it last night and you, you did the show, you told us the story and you got me. I was, I I won't spoil it for certain things, but you mentioned an individual who's a Mm -hmm. big part of the show. And I was like, is is he real? Is he real? So I, (laughs) I looked into it. I won't spoil it. And I also looked into the go, I will, I nearly spoiled it. There's another thing you mentioned. And I was like, I've done a little bit of theatre. I've heard of that. I don't know if it's for you. So I asked a theatre friend, is this real? And she was like, yeah, that's pretty real. And I was like, well, if that's real, what else could be real? (laughs) You've got me. Wonderful. I'm (laughs) so happy to hear that. One of the themes of the piece is kind of how um, uh, both uh, truths, uh, facts, and kind of our interpretations of them bleed into each other and kind of influence what we understand to be real. Um, how does uh, one of the big themes of the night is never let the strict adherence to fact get in the way of uh, a true story? Yeah. So I, I kind of took a lot of creative liberties with um, uh, people and places and and things like that. So it is a at the heart of a work of fiction, but it is rooted in experiences that I've had to kind of give it a sense of um, familiarity. And uh, it, that is one of the wonderful things is people are always curious what is actually real about the story and what is kind of exaggerated or invented. And uh, yeah, at a certain point, you start to forget. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I was like, at one point, again, at the beginning, when you're making the drink, and I think it's okay to say a little bit about what we're drinking. Oh, absolutely. You, Please, yeah. It's, was it a rusty nail you, you called it? We Yeah, we have a cocktail called a rusty nail, and I'm not sure how um, widespread that cocktail is around the world, but in this version has a little bit of absinthe and rosemary in it. So it's a classic cocktail, but a bit of a variation on a theme. And what's so interesting about that is you brought up a bottle of Jura whiskey, and mm-hmm. Jura is from Oban, I believe, which is not mm-hmm. far away from where I am now. I've been to Oban a billion and one times, so when I saw that bottle, I was like, I know that bottle! I know that <laughs> bottle! So that immersed me in it as well, which is probably That's wonderful. a fantastic thing for doing it in Scotland, I imagine, because people yeah. know what you're talking about. Uh, one of the the goals is uh, it's worked so well online, but uh, I do very much miss the fringe and I miss being in Scotland and performing in the summers there. And uh, I'd love to find a way to actually do this in person and actually make a drink for people at the top of the show, really include include them in the experience and then come around and actually tell them the story uh, in a very, you know, 
uh, intimate environment. I think that could be a really cool experience. That would be very cool, especially on, how would you describe it? A drizzly night in, in Edinburgh, because yeah. it's, it's summer in Scotland, so you're going to get a drizzly night in Edinburgh. <laughs> I want to ask a little bit about the venue, because the venue you're doing it in is absolutely gorgeous. It's a stunning it's place. Yeah. What was it, what's it like performing in that venue, and how much of the show did you tailor to performing in that venue? Uh, so... The venue is gorgeous, and um, it actually came about kind of um, it was it, it, serendipity it, is the word that we've been using a lot for this. Um, I had originally been planning on doing it at another venue, and at the uh, it, it was a venue that a friend of mine ran. It's a small, quaint little cozy bar that has like twelve seats in it, and it's literally called Mini Bar. Um, but due to the pandemic, it had been shuttered for a long time. So we were kind of thinking, oh, that might be a great way to, you know, steer a little bit of money to my friend's bar that's been uh, closed and we'll have full run of the place. And at the very last minute in July, um, unfortunately, the business went under and the bar changed hands to somebody else who was planning on opening it up. And so it was just in the state of flux. We didn't know if the new owners were going to be cool with us coming in and doing this strange little performance piece <laughs> you know, um, while they were trying to build out the new space and see if they could open it. Um, so uh, only a few weeks before our opening, when we were definitely panicking, another friend put us in touch with the Wolves, uh, the name of the bar, and uh, just immediately saw the place. Uh, we were hitting it off with the owner and uh, we're just, our jaws were on the floor. This place is incredible. And what's amazing about it, there, there's actually two different bars. Um, there's one that's very visible in the photographs that has these gorgeous like iron arched ceilings yeah. and stained glass and iron works and old mahogany. And it's just this stunning bar. And when we saw the photos, we're like, we have to do it there. And we walked in. And we were, it was like, oh, okay, this is great. Like the marble uh, bar top and everything this is just flawless. It's perfect. Um, but it was very bright from the street because for us, when we're performing for a 9 p.m. show in the UK, it's 1 p.m. for us. Yeah, so to yeah. create a dark and kind of mysterious night was going to be a bit of a challenge. And so we were in love with the bar, though, and <laughs> the, uh, our friend was like, so I guess you don't even want to see the one upstairs, do you? And we're like, well, well, I mean, we'll check it out. We'll, we'll look at it, but we're doing yeah. it here. And the second we got upstairs, it was like, oh, this, it was almost as if the story had been written for this space. Um, there, it, it has a much smaller pub feel mm-hmm. than the one downstairs, which is very grand. And um, and when we were looking around, I, I, I don't want to ruin anything for the show, but different uh, views of this smaller upstairs bar reveal things that seem to directly tie into the show. I, I yes. talk about a theater in the second half of the play. And when the camera rotates around, one of the things that caught me was there is a, an, an enormous um, mural on the back wall yeah. of these old faces from like the 1920s. And it was just, oh, there is your ghostly audience watching 
silently never commented on but we talk about an audience and there is a visual representation of one off to the side it, it was just it gave me chills it's like oh yeah. we have to do it here there's no question i saw that as well i, I absolutely noticed that and again not trying so hard not to spoil it because it's <laughs> fantastic to see but there's a point when you're telling the story and at a certain point of the story there is an audience and as you said that mural behind you was pitch perfect it was like it was built for your for your story i'd like to ask a little bit about doing it live every sure. time because it'd be so easy to come in and sit and think oh this is all pre-recorded we're just watching pre-record but you talk to the audience you ask the audience you get their reactions you read their comments mm -hmm. what was the motivation behind wanting to do it live every time as opposed to just doing it on demand yeah uh Thanks for asking. I, we did consider doing it um, as a pre-recorded film piece, uh, but you know, I, I at the time this summer when we were considering that, I had seen only some less successful uh, kind of uh, versions of filmed theater, um, unless it, it has a really terrific budget and it's a production that's been going on and you've got a bunch of different camera angles and people really understand how to incorporate the filmic elements of, um, of that experience. It, it can, if people aren't careful, feel a little uh, removed and dry. And there's a, a very fine line, I think, about crossing the art form of theater with film in that um, one of the wonderful elements of theater is that it is live and it is kind of a high wire act and you adapt in the moment and you do sense the energy from the audience and you, you know, subtly or explicitly bring that into the performance. And um, a, a, we're also trained to watch things differently between media. Uh, you know, we've spent a year and a half watching Netflix and uh, Amazon Prime and films. And so our minds, when we see something on a screen, are just trained to expect faster cuts, different mm -hmm. angles, inserts, all of these different things that we don't even know that we're trained to expect from that mode of storytelling. That when somebody is presenting a filmed piece of theater, there's this um, even very aware audiences uh, I think have this kind of, okay, well, uh, when are they going to cut to the other angle internally? And, and so there was this sense of like, if we, if we do that, we have to be really good about different cameras and, and movement and really uh, intelligent about that. Or we can see what we can do with a live performance and see how, long we can keep the audience with storytelling if they give us the um the allowance because they know it is happening live yeah I, I, and i think we just you buy yourself a little bit more freedom with the theater audience if they know it's live happening in real time and they are part of the experience and then thematically and i'm sorry if i'm talking too much Peter, oh no just... no you carry on <laughs> Yeah, um, I, I have a habit of running my mouth, so uh, that, that's, that's okay. why I'm doing a one-person show, right? <laughs> um, but uh, there's this element about the story that actually is about community. Um, 
it, it, it's the community and the camaraderie that we find in bars and in live theater. We, we talk about that throughout the night. And so it just felt like if we were going to do a story about recreating community, it had to be that experience. It has to be that we are recreating a community every night with new people, welcoming them in, encouraging them to um, share things that they want to reflect on over the past year. Like I, I just felt it as it's not so much a performance. It's not so much a pre-recorded thing as it as, as it is an opportunity to connect with people and create almost a little sacred space at this bar for people to feel like they are included and can share things. Um, so that was really important to us as we uh, developed the project. And I'm, I'm happy to say that I feel like uh, that is now the central point of the show. Yeah. And it, it, I'm really happy with it. I think it worked as well because I was, I was casually scrolling down through to see people's reactions during the show, just to see what other people were making of it. And at the start, there were a lot of people sitting there like, <laughs> kind of right. thing but towards the end they were all like everyone That's was engrossed great. you got everyone you you dragged us all into the story which i imagine as an actor telling the story is exactly what you want yeah it, it, it's really rewarding to be able to see the reactions um and you're right there there is kind of a hesitancy of people are like all right what am i getting myself into who is this guy um but by the end i do feel that people are connected and they have made the the effort to um, connect and and invest in the time, and I think they're rewarded as a result. Absolutely, they definitely. Yeah, I said last night on Twitter, but I want you to tell me stories every night. Just <laughs> just stand at the end of my bed, tell me a story every night. That'll do me quite happily. <laughs> just just do like a, 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 a tucking people in and reading them a story at night. Like that's a, a good idea. What what a wonderful uh, what a wonderful new business opportunity! You can be even you, Johnny Carson. <laughs> right, yeah. I'll take it. Where can people find out more about you and the show online? Uh, so, uh, inhousetheater.org is our website for the theater company, and we'll have links there to the show and maybe a little bit of background about that. Um, I I guess we've got some performer profiles on there as well, uh, but I'm. Uh, here in the U.S., I grew up in uh, Washington, D.C., and then uh, spent a lot of time doing theater in New York before moving out to L.A. So uh, it's uh, the New York, L.A. actor experience is uh, a pretty common one here. So, <laughs> But also a pretty unique tale, I imagine, because New York City is an interesting city from what I've heard. Never been, but someday. Oh, Peter, you have to come over and, and check it out. I will someday at some point. Yeah. I was supposed to come over later this year, but the world's least favorite sea word. Sure. But someday I will get there and we'll say hi. Excellent. And uh, we wait until the Broadway theaters are reopened and then uh, we, we can go on a, 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 a theater hopping tour yes. together. Yes, All right. that sounds great. <laughs> thank you so much for your time today. It was so great to speak oh to you. Oh my gosh, Peter, thank you for having me. Dark Spirits, Black Humor, A Night of Cocktails and Storytelling is playing at the Assembly Showcatcher online at 9 o'clock on the 25th and the 29th of August. Could I start by asking your name and what you do, please? My name is Kirsty Halliday. I'm a writer, director, actress from Edinburgh, living in the Cayman Islands. How are you today, Kirsty? Are you well? I'm good. I'm heavy. I'm sitting on a birthing ball just now. <laughs> Yes, we're not alone in this interview. There's another one in the in the yeah. 
in the, in the, in the presence of another one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm due. Uh, I'm due a baby in a week, so I don't know what I'm doing, trying to be in the fringe right now. But it's it's a wild ride. It's the it's the you're in the fringe. That's the important thing. Yes. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit bit about your show. It is called Till Love Us Do Part. Till Love Do Us Part. Till Love yeah. Do Us Part. I was so deterred. I, I even wrote it down so I'd get it right, but I got it wrong. I apologize profusely. Till love okay. do us part. What yes. is what is your show? Tell us a little bit about it. Well, it sounds like a love story. It's a bit more of an unlove story. And it's sort of a couple going through the traditional milestones that society imposes on a relationship from dating and engagement and marriage into trying to conceive. And that's where they hit a hurdle and discover that it's not so easy to just progress through all these milestones the way that you're taught is expected of you so it is about trying to conceive and love and relationships and marriage really which is very unlike me to write about but it was a topic I sort of fell into and I found really interesting to unpick See, what's interesting is you said it sounds like it should be a love story. But when I looked at the title, I was like, ooh, to love do us part? That sounds kind of ominous. So where does that come into it a little bit? Well, it's funny you say that because I thought I had made it obvious with that title that it wasn't going to be your average love story. And then lots of people, when we did our preview, came out of it going, I thought it was going to be this love story and it was going to be so nice. And then it wasn't. And I was like... Well, I didn't write till death do us part. That was yeah, the whole point. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, you're right. I, I thought it was obvious, but not not to all of our audience. It hasn't been. Um, but yeah, I, I found that interesting. I think in today's society, it's an interesting vow, isn't it? There's so many people that have several marriages or don't want to get married or just it doesn't work for that sort of convention that's placed on us. So I find it more interesting to look at why we're still insisting that people make lifelong commitments and that there's this you know sacred thing that is marriage and for so many people it it doesn't work that way so I find it interesting I was really interested in unpicking why that is and what goes wrong and why we feel so inclined to go down all those traditional roads. I find it so interesting as well particularly looking at how Technology does play a part in it because when we're young, we're limited to so much information, but now information is everywhere. But at a certain point in time, the tradition was one man, one woman forever. And it's mm-hmm. just not that anymore. How did that go into putting, the, putting your story together? Well, yeah, I, I, I was looking at everyone's stories around me and I'm, I'm slightly a hypocrite in all this because I never wanted to get married and I now am <laughs> and I'm happily married and I have been for five years but I spent a long time going that's just not for me I've got no interest in a wedding got no interest in putting that kind of a label on it I, I just will have a longer relationship when I find the right person and then it almost and I and I guess I'm affected by this societal pressure because by the time my now husband proposed to me which was not on the cards in my head um, I was like, yeah, that, that's exactly what I want. I want to make sure you know you're my person and this isn't just another relationship. And I don't know where that came from for me. <laughs> like, I really, my friends were all going, what do you mean you're engaged? You, you didn't want to get married. You don't believe in marriage. And I was like, I know, I don't know what's happened. So I, it sort of started with myself. I, I don't know how that changed for me. And I was interested in looking at people that 
see that differently and that really have that traditional view where it's you know they've been planning their wedding since they were little girls it's especially a female thing I think mm -hmm. that you really have that fantasy and Disney sells it to you and movies sell it to you and somewhere along the lines you have to make this decision as to whether that is something you want or whether you're a sucker to the system or what it is and I've just been around so many people now that have completely opposing views on it and the same with wanting children or whatever that next milestone or step is mm -hmm. I'm fascinated I'm fascinated about why we make those decisions why we try and rebel against them because sometimes you're rebelling just because you're going well I'm not doing that just because you've told me I should yeah and then you suddenly think oh actually I might I might want that <laughs> yeah it might, it's not so bad after all see it's interesting yeah. that you say that because I remember being maybe 10 11 12 years old and I planned my wedding I've got my dream oh. wedding in my head I am the is, is there a groomzilla I don't know don't know if that's <laughs> yeah, a term absolutely. but, but absolutely. that's that's me even down like when I was younger it was like okay I'm going to do this 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 and this and the, my bride is going to wear this and this so I had it all planned Aww. out I am one of those people now I'm older I realize that the bride might not like being told what she's wearing and the shoes <laughs> and stuff so I, I'll, I'll give some leeway a little bit but that's so nice and it's so nice you've got that interest because it is lacking in and so many men are taught that that's the women's domain and it shouldn't be it's your yes. day together and actually I think my husband had his fair share of opinions on our wedding because I didn't I was like I don't know I went into the wedding dress shop and I said they, they like I think they were horrified by me I just said I really would like one that will let me eat my dinner I don't want to be like mm -hmm. sucked in and they were like um <laughs> anything else you're thinking like lace this and I was like oh I sort of knew what I didn't want I had no idea what I did want and and that was interesting it, it kind of shamed me a bit standing in these wedding shops where all these girls had all these ideas like you say they'd been planning it since they were little and they're going oh I want this and I want one with the juge here and I want her one shoulder and I'm just going I want to be able to eat I've heard that brides don't eat yeah. I want to eat <laughs> so I was I was not fitting all the right things that they wanted me to be saying and fantasizing over so I think it's lovely when people do I mean if it's if it's something you want you should have an opinion on it but not for all of us <laughs> but that's interesting as well and I wonder if this played a part in your story as well when you went into the shop and you were saying things that they probably never heard before even that goes into like the tradition of what weddings should be mm -hmm. yeah you're supposed to have an opinion you're supposed to have a book with cuttings and all this fantasy in your head and and I just didn't and it was the same with um with children which plays a big part into the storyline of this play more so than marriage actually is trying to conceive and for a lot of people that's a big conversation and that's one that comes in and out of relationships when you'll have children and if you'll have children and are, is it the right thing to do when the world is such a mess that's a big one mm -hmm, yeah and I sort of always wanted children and just didn't know if it was ever going to fit in. And I didn't know how to handle that. I kind of was going, how am I going to be an artist and have a career and do all these things and be a mum? When's that going to happen? And my husband was looking at tantruming children and going, I don't want that in my life. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. it was really interesting to then go on a journey of trying to conceive because there was this slight hesitation from one side and then it would switch and eventually it was like no I, we do want this let's 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 have a family and even that there's a lot of pressure and I've sat at baby showers where they've got oh you'll be next and you're thinking that's a bit presumptuous you can't just yeah. tell someone they're having children because they've been married a while 
And then again, I've fallen into it and here we are. Here you are <laughs> so, telling a story with a, with a literal baby. Exactly. So it's been bizarre, but a lot of the play comes from other people's experiences and me observing just all these things that, that fell out of the conventional route that I don't think are discussed. And the biggest one and the sort of sensitive subject we hit within the play is miscarriage. Mm -hmm. And that's where I found the want to write this play was when I miscarried about a year ago. So now happily about to have my baby, but it was a horrible experience. And it was absolutely out of the realm of what I knew could happen. And I felt very misled. I felt like every movie or TV show or play that had ever showed me someone losing a baby had lied to me about what happens because it just was, A, it's so much more common than people tell you. And it's B, so much less preventable than people would have you think. I feel like when you see it in a movie, somebody's done something you shouldn't have, or they've been pushed downstairs, or they're drinking or smoking, or they've ridden a horse, and then they suddenly are bleeding and they've lost their baby. And the reality is it's like 80% plus, it's a genetics thing, and your body is going, oh, this isn't going to be a healthy pregnancy, we need to terminate it, and it sort of self-terminates. And I also didn't know that you could find out you were having a miscarriage before you had it. So I found out at a scan, and then had to wait to, for it to happen. And it was just something I'd never heard of. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? Don't miscarriages just happen to you? And you've no idea, yeah. like it just suddenly comes upon you. So I felt um, very strongly that those sensitive subjects that have been avoided are kind of portrayed, like the minority is what is portrayed. Yeah. And then everyone else that goes through it is kind of blindsided and going, I didn't know it could happen this way. I didn't know you could turn up for a scan and just suddenly not hear the heartbeat. And it I would just be that. this moment. Yeah. And, and that's it. That was exactly it is I didn't know anyone that was talking about this. And then when I started to talk about it, I had so many people going, oh, yeah, that happened to my friend. That happened to me. And I was going, how is no one? Why is this a taboo? It shouldn't be a taboo. It brings shame to it. And it brings this horrible, traumatic experience suddenly becomes something that you're not allowed to talk about. And I was like, well, I'm talking about it. We're putting this on stage. So that was actually the main reason behind the play was to have a portrayal of pregnancy loss that wasn't somebody standing up at a dinner table pouring with blood. Yeah. That's also, I imagine, helpful to get information out there for people who, like I said, I, I'd never heard of this. I didn't know any of this. So has that been... Have you been getting feedback about that? People saying that it's helpful for yeah. them to know? Yeah, and actually a couple of people have reached out who have been through it and said, like, this is the first time I've talked about this. I've not met anyone else that's been through it and I didn't, I didn't know about it either until it happened to me. And that was really a, a really beautiful thing that there's this little community emerging. We also, when we did the live production, which is what we filmed for The Fringe, we just did two nights to try and get this footage, basically, to put it in The Fringe. But we had a sponsor here uh, in the Cayman Islands where I live that was a local women's health clinic. And they did a bit in our playbill to say how common it was, what support there was. And I think that did a lot. There was a lot of people coming out of it going, OK, I didn't know this clinic was here. I didn't know there was someone to talk to about this. And they offer it, you know, counselling and things like that for it as well, which is really nice. So the community here has definitely been given a bit of a voice. And it's a small community, we're a small island, so it does make 
make a difference to do something like that, which has been really lovely to have people reach out because I, I'm so fortunate that one of the first friends I told had been through the same and I just didn't know. So I immediately had someone to talk to. So many people are sitting, hanging on to this pain and this trauma, feeling like they are one in a million. And the reality is it's, it's the most common way to lose pregnancy and just isn't talked about until it happens to you. So yeah, there has been a lot of connection over that and a lot of people getting a bit more informed about it, which I think is important as well to break this taboo. Yeah, definitely. I think it's so important to get the information out there. Yeah. I'd like to ask a little bit about the production of the play because <laughs> you said you filmed it over two nights and then the world's least favorite C word happened and we didn't, and there wasn't a fringe last year. How did you decide to put on the video show to put the show on video instead of doing it in person and what was what has changed between the live version and the filmed version so interestingly we we didn't originally set out to put it in the fringe i'm i'm from edinburgh i love the fringe mm. i've done it a million times over in different capacities and i was there in 2019 at the last fringe in person and the way that um the way that covid has hit our community is that we have had our borders locked for a year and a half. Oh, really? So we are on this island, mm -hmm. and unless you have an essential travel reason, which I don't think they're going to let me come into the fringe, be one. Yeah. Um, you are. We are here, and we are fully locked in, and it's it's worked. We've actually been COVID free in the community for a year, so our lives are much more normal than a lot of places in the world right now, which is why we were able to put on the live theatre. But originally, I wrote this last December. For a friend who was leaving to go to Canada, he's a wonderful actor, Liam Oko, he plays the lead male in the show. And I wrote it for him as a gift. He wanted to do a swan song and we didn't have anything coming up at the theatre that he could be part of um, as a last piece. So I sort of went, well, let's see if we can write something. And I was going to do it with him in our festival. We have a little festival here in February. We were going to do this sort of fast turnaround and do a test read. And then I got pregnant again and I said to him, there's no way I'm doing my own miscarriage storyline while I'm at the same stage of pregnancy that I lost my own. So yeah, I went, absolutely. right, not playing it. Yeah, it wasn't the healthy thing for me to do. So we did a different one and we sort of shelved this one. And then we were just toying with bringing it back in the summer. And this lovely actress, Lorna Fitzgerald, came onto the island and reached out to me. And she's got a lovely acting career in the UK. She had just um, moved here having been on EastEnders for 12 years and then oh, really yeah so she's she's had a lovely career and she then went onto the stage and did some stage shows for a couple of years but then of course same situation COVID hit her partner got offered a job here she wasn't going to get to continue acting at that time anyway so she moved here and I was like this actress has just landed in our laps just as I was deciding whether or not to do this play and who would play the role I was meant to, this has got to be, you know, a sign. Yeah, this is so, kismet. Yeah, it really was. And I said to her, and then, well, in her sort of communication with me, she'd said, you know, I'm not doing acting anymore. I've come here to start something else and, you know, start a new chapter. And I went, oh, that's such a shame because I was just looking for an actress right at your type. And she went, well, I don't need to completely give up. I, <laughs> I, like, I can maybe done. do one more thing. <laughs> exactly. And, and it was so lucky that she did because she was, She's a stunning actress and she's, they had such a great chemistry. 
So she came on board and right as that happened, about a week into rehearsal, the Fringe sent an email and it said they were doing online. And I went, oh. So it started off, it was supposed to be a test read. And I like to do a one read with an audience and get some feedback. And I didn't get to do that. So it's a kind of rough version of the play that we've ended up putting on. And we decided to put it on for two nights, um, which we did as a fundraiser for the theatre here to raise acting scholarship money for young students to do acting summer camps. And we filmed and then we actually only used footage from one of the nights in the end, but we did two just to have a sort of safety take yeah. and make sure that we had a backup. But um, it was interesting because Cayman audiences are very different from UK audiences and they're very vocal. So oh. I was a bit worried <laughs> listening, thinking, oh gosh, there's so much feedback in this. They're talking, they're tutting, they're cheering. There's a kiss within the first two minutes of the play and they whooped. <laughs> and I was like, guys. So it was it was quite a, an interesting moment. And I wasn't sure quite how to translate into being in the online fringe. And actually from what I've seen, and I didn't think about this at the time, we're one of the only plays I've managed to watch that's got a live audience in the recording because so many people were under restrictions when they had to film. Yeah. So we didn't have to change the format of ours at all. It is done as a really traditional digital theater. The cameras in the audience, you are watching from a seat in the audience. You don't have close-ups or anything like that. It's not filmed style. We nearly did close-ups. We did a night of filming close-ups and then I watched it and sort of went, this doesn't feel like theater. It feels like we've changed it into something else. Yeah. So it's ended up being a much more standard filmed production. Um, but it was, it, it sounds a bit disappointing when we're on a Fringe podcast, but it wasn't intended for the Fringe originally. It was meant to be a test read for me to redraft it and maybe take next year. And then it ended up being <laughs> this bigger beast. And uh, now it's now it's sitting online. I don't know if this is kind of maybe a too personal question, but being that you are from Edinburgh and you do know the Fringe and you've been to it a bunch of times, was it important for you to do something for the fringe this year it's year back after the year of the c-word yeah I, I i have always felt a massive connection to the fringe and it's i think it's informed me becoming an artist because i grew up in the heart of it and always was taken by family to go see things and was involved in things as a young actor pretty quickly so i always want to support it Absolutely. And I've, I've always, I'm always a friend of the fringe, even when I'm a performer and it, the benefits are same. I'm still like, if, if I can donate and support them, I always will. And I, I did the same with this. I think even putting it on for the full run instead of taking a short run, the sensible version, the business version would be to do a short run. It's really not going to affect the ticket sales for online to have it available for longer. People will buy it and watch it whenever it's available if they want to. But it was, yeah, there's a big part of the heart of the fringe where you want to support. And I'm, I try and do the same with supporting other artists and connecting with them and tweeting or Instagramming or whatever. Every time I watch one of their shows to say, I'm watching this, just to keep giving everyone that traction. I think it's such, a, it's such an important community. And I was worried for the fringe. I was really worried last year getting the updates, thinking yeah. we can't lose this. We, this is such a big part of the arts community in the UK. We cannot lose the Edinburgh Fringe. And Definitely. I know there's lots of fringes, but the Edinburgh, and I'm of course biased, but it has a big heart and it has, it has been a big starting point for so many shows and so many performers and the comedy circuit. 
Mm-hmm, definitely. I mean, without the fringe, the comedy circuit would would lose a lot of awards that really shape people's careers. Yeah, so, I mean, you can yeah. throw a stone and hit a name, somebody who's been at the Edinburgh Fringe and started from the Edinburgh Fringe. Absolutely. And it's a really special thing. So, yeah, I always I do want to support it. And as soon as I saw it, I thought we've got to. We've got to, if they're doing online and we can't be there in person, we've got to get something there. So, yeah. Yeah. What I think has been great about the Fringe this year, and I've said it before on on these interviews, and I apologise if you heard this before, listeners, but what's been brilliant about the Fringe coming back this year is it was always a worldwide festival, but the world would have to come to Edinburgh to see it. Mm -hmm. Now Edinburgh is going to the world online, and that's been a very Mm -hmm. special thing to see. Yeah, I hope that continues. I really hope the online platform isn't temporary, because I think what it's offering even for people whose, you know, plans get cancelled at the last minute and it means they're not left out. Because I'll tell you, I've sat and done fringe days at home the way I would have done them if I was in Edinburgh. And I've watched four or five in a row and really like just shut the lights off. And at one point I was making myself sit on my dining room chair because I was like, you don't get comfy beds at the fringe. You can't lie in bed and watch it. You've got to sit properly and (laughs) engage. But I think that's really special that it is... It is bringing people together from around the world still, whether we can be there or not. Where can people find out more about you and about the show online? So my handle on social media is Thespian and Proud. And I am not big on social media in other ways, but when it comes to the arts, that's pretty much all I post. So I'm on Instagram and Twitter and I have a Facebook page, all is Thespian and Proud. There is a blog, but it's very inactive. So it may be disappointing to go there. So yeah. I would stick to Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. Um, but there's been and proud is where I post all the show stuff and it's sometimes real life stuff, but very rarely. Yeah. I, I know it's very cliche to say this, but I wish you the best of luck and love with the, the forthcoming baby. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. And thank you for providing an outlet for all the little fringe artists like me that just, we want to just talk about our shows and get excited about the fringe together. It's awesome. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Till Love Us Do Part is streaming on demand from the Fringe Player from the 6th of August, available to watch any single time you'd like. Could I start by asking you your name and what you do, please? My name is Dina Ronane, and my company is Hardly Working Promotions, LLC. Typically, I produce, but through the Edinburgh Fringe, this is my first time as a writer. And what's your show? Tell us a little bit about it. It's called Triple Bypass, three 10-minute plays about living for death and dying for life. And it's exactly as it sounds. It's life and death presented in three ways, three short plays that are all unique, but they each have a different spin on life and death. Uh, Where did this show come from? What's its origin story? Well, I've always been a fan of 10-minute plays. I used to live in Orlando, Florida, and there's a really great group there called Playwrights Roundtable, and they do two shows a year revolving around 10-minute plays. I had... The idea for the first one, which is very serious drama, a few years ago, and that went up through PRT, and I knew there would could potentially be something bigger with other shows to complement it. So each of the shows has a little origin story as to how I how I came up with it, and they all had the theme of life and death, and that's how Triple Bypass was born. Let's talk a little bit about the free show, the three. Sh- I can't say it anymore. The three shows I got there without being as spoilery as we can, which is always the problem with doing these things because you want to say to people, so tell me about your show, but naturally they can't because they want people to see it. So 
What can you tell us about the three stories? The first one's called Seeking Dignity. It's a very, very heavy drama, and it's got some trigger warnings with situations such as abuse or addiction. So everyone has a, a fair warning. There, there are some triggers in that one. And I think I'll, I'll tell you the, the backstory. I was in a show a few years ago, and you get to know people really well during a show. And one of my co-stars confided in me that he was a survivor of something very horrific. And I had had a few beers at this time. So the conversation kept, kept going and time kept passing. So finally I turned to him and I said, let's deal with this. Let's go beat this person up. Let's go get justice. I'll go with you. It'll be fun. And he said, no. He said, what would it serve? There's no point. So I went home and I penned this, this first draft of, of Seeking Dignity. And I think the ultimate theme is probably, probably motivation and what do people deserve? What do they think do they, that they deserve? The ridiculous things people come up with to explain their motivations. It's, it's a very dark story, which is why I have it at the front, not at the end. The second one, I don't know if this is a real genre. I'm calling it ethereal fan fiction and it's called <laughs> Close to Black. So when I work and I write, I typically have the TV on in the background. And in the UK, do you do you have a channel called Reels, R-E-E-L-Z? We may have had at some point, but I'm not familiar with it. Okay, it's, it's celebrity stories. It's celebrity trash. It's trash talk stories. Oh, like TMZ, that kind of thing. Kind of, and it's a lot of documentary style things. Okay, so yeah. So I was... I was working and there were back-to-back stories about two particular women. And I thought to myself, has no one put this together before where the similarities are? So in Close to Black, I've created a scenario in which they have an interaction. That sounds interesting. I'm very curious about that one. I don't want to... That one seems to be the... I don't want to put this in people's heads, (laughs) but I might as well now. That one seems to be the favorite. Okay. It has, a, it has a loving nickname other than, than Close to Black. And the third one, this is actually my favorite story to tell. It's called Tangoed Web. I was in Berlin and I was waiting for a flight. There was nothing on the TV that was in English except for the Nature Channel. It was BBC. So there was the story about these little spiders that are about the size of a, of a grain of rice and their mating ritual. And I wasn't paying a ton of attention And then all of a sudden they play this tango when the male is trying to impress the female. And I just lost it. I burst out laughing. I was crying. I was holding my sides. I was hiccuping. So I'm watching this and I'm just dying. So I thought to myself, this has to be a play. It has to. And that was the birth of Tango to Web. (laughs) See, I'm so curious about that one. I want to ask more, but I'm petrified of spiders so i don't quite know how to ask about these it spiders are so cute they're teeny 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 and they have these, these the males have these these colorful fans that they unfurl to impress the female but th- they are deadly see that's see you're not selling it you're making it worse so all right it is played by people <laughs> okay. not by spiders see what if like you'd gotten arachnophobia friendly there we go that's what i was asking that's what i was trying to ask and 
because I was just imagining people dancing around with like this arm and then like seven other arms below them and that kind of thing. Well, you'll have to watch and see. I am very curious to see it. (laughs) So when you came to put this show together, how did you decide on three? Why three? Why not four? Why not two? Why why three? Timing, number one. You don't want to you don't want to exhaust an audience with if it's if it's a specific event the way PRT does it, they typically do eight to 10. I wanted to do something that was one act. And I also wanted to give any director out there the flexibility to stretch it out or make them as compact and fast paced as they could. But I wanted to limit to one act. And the, like I said before, the end is, is joyous. It, it's funny. The, the middle one is kind of a, mm, my heart feels good. It, that way we have a balance. We have an arc with something very serious. And then the, the heartwarming one, and then just the silly raunchy body comedy. The arc is what made me choose three. And also I wanted to play with the name. I had toyed with a few things and triple bypasses is, is what I landed on, but I, I had found a few with the, with the word triple in it. And that's the one that I liked the best because it also alluded to the life and death thing. What was it like sitting down and writing these plays? Because you said this is your first time writing, writing a play. What was it like putting it together? Well, the first one, like I said, had been done a few years ago, but I I knew I wanted to do the other two. Just before COVID really, truly hit, I went to a, a writer's retreat at the Hartwell House just outside of London. So this was the beginning of March. And I set this up and I was so excited about it. And it didn't things were starting to to dwindle because people were getting nervous nothing was official yet but it was it was starting to travel was slowing down but we we seemed okay everything seemed stable in the US things the uh the cases in the UK were still low so i figured i can always come home if i go and i went out there and it was that place usually is full of, of artists doing artsy things. And it was, it was relatively empty. And I had a hard time concentrating because number one, my debit card stopped working. And number two, the news was getting really scary. So it was basically me and one of the managers that had been there for over 30 years, but he told me something that I have been sharing ever since he'd met a lot of celebrities. He'd seen a lot of writers, a lot of creatives. And he said that writing is like digging a hole. Whether it's one spade or a quarry, it's still a hole and it has value and it's it's yours. So no matter what becomes of it, that is something intrinsic. And it didn't matter if I finished the play, it didn't matter if I was chatting and schmoozing with other artists, none of that mattered. What mattered is that I, that I was there and it was the situation was unique and I put the time in. So. At that point, what I what I penned during that stay was the prelude poems that go before each piece. That's what I ended up finishing there. And I think a day and a half later, I had to fly back on an emergency basis. We found out as the plane was going into Canadian airspace that the UK had been included in the no the no flying to the US ordinances. Right. That was lucky you got the plane when you did an hour or an hour or so later. And who knows? An hour or so later, and who knows, plus on the next day when I was safely home in the Midwestern United States, 
that was the day where the news was full of all the airports where people were waiting eight hours to even get through security, then eight hours to get on their flight, then eight hours to get off their flight, then eight hours to get through. And that would have been very, very difficult. So yeah, I, was, would, I was very fortunate. That would have been very traumatic, I imagine, to go through that. And then after that, I had a slim margin of time to, to finish because we were, we were realizing that things were going to start going virtually. So Orlando Fringe was canceled. I had another show going with that. I, I went into a morning for a while, but then we started seeing more of the virtual, the virtual prospects. Elgin Winter Mini Fest was my first one for Triple Bypass. So we, I had to finish writing it and then work with my local community theater in order to film it on an empty stage. And that had to be done by December. And it went up, I think, in, in January of 2021. That was the first one out of, out of 14 so far for our virtual shows. See, that's so interesting that you filmed it like in what would be the heart of COVID. What was it like filming during that time? We had a very huge space and very few cast members. We were masked. We were distanced. And the only time people were in closer proximity was during the filming. And it was 10 minute pieces and it was still small. And I'll tell you something. I didn't know it, but I had COVID. Oh, during really? some of the, I did oh, during no. some of the rehearsals. And guess what? No one else got sick. Masks work. That, that's, a, that's a novel concept. Imagine that. Mm. <laughs> Imagine trying to explain that to some people in the world. But that's yeah. a completely different conversation for another time. I had, I had gone through three negative tests the week after rehearsals ended and they all came up negative, And then I came up positive. That's so interesting. See, I, I just don't understand how it, it all works. It's for bigger brains than me. I just sit here and talk to talk to people that's that's my job we have epidemiologists working on that and hopefully we'll get through this soon hopefully soon yeah was the idea did you write the idea with it specifically being for film and can it be adjusted for when live shows well live shows are back in the UK but when they're back all over the world it's written as a play and we fully staged this as if you're sitting in an audience and watching a play. It's done at the historic Capitol Theater in Aberdeen, South Dakota, not Aberdeen, Scotland, (laughs) but it'd be cool to talk to those people. And it's done as if you're an audience member. So it's fully staged, props, costumes, lighting, as if you're sitting in a theater. So absolutely. My hope is that when things return to normal, there are certain cities that I would love to do this live with local casts and local crews. And all I would retain is just the, the producer's work. And just my name as the, as the writer, everything else will be up to their, their new take on it, their new creative spins with these local, local groups. I'm, I'm hoping Minneapolis, I'm hoping one of the Canadian fringes, definitely hoping Edinburgh and possibly Adelaide. That'd be so interesting to see different takes on it. It's exciting. And even when you write and you see the director and the, the actors put their own spin on something that you never thought of, it's, it's really rewarding. I did a, a workshop for my high school a few days ago. And I, of course, I told them the, the digging, a, digging a hole thing. I also said, don't dig too deep because that's, that's part of the part of the struggle. But what I was trying to drive home is that what's in your head only matters so much. If you don't convey that, then it, with, with the words you use and how you use them, then your director's not going to get it. Your actors aren't going to get it. And the audience certainly isn't going to get it. But when you, when you do what, what your due diligence is as the writer, the way you see a play versus the way the audience sees it, 
then it's still open for interpretation. You can have the sentence and someone can say it a completely different way. The director can make it go in a completely different direction. And that's amazing to see, at least I think. See, that's what I find so fascinating about people who write their work and then let other people perform it is, how how do I ask this nicely? And I don't mean any offense by this, but what I mean is, how do you fight the urge to be like, that's not how I heard it in my head. You should do it this way and really try to imprint yourself on, on your story. I've already done that. I've already done that with my words. And this is going to sound kind of kooky, but we're going to go with it. What you're actually talking about is, is the ego. Yes. And I've, I've done a decent amount of mind, body, spirit work in the Western part of the country in Sedona, Arizona. So that's the ego, which is control, which is, you know, this is, you know, this is my visions, my thing. Well, you know, guess what? I didn't write a one woman show. I, I wrote an ensemble show and that's, that's the bigger kind of hippy dippy spiritual picture. The practical picture is I want the people I work with to be just as excited about, about this project. You know, you're a, a work of art is your baby. And if you're lucky, the people you're working with feel your baby is their baby. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes absolute sense. Yeah. I was just, I just find out so curious as to how people don't get so possessive over it. I think it's well. You, you get that you get that little tug, kind of kind of in your heart, going, oh, you know, I, I kind of wanted to to hear that line that way, but it's cool. You you know, you let it go, and there are, you don't do this for your for yourself. I mean, you do it to get your art out. The reason I'm involved in the arts is not necessarily to be on stage or anything of that nature. I'm, I feel it's important to tell stories. So whether I'm producing or on stage or writing, it's all part of telling a story. So it's bigger, it's bigger than me. It's bigger than the creative team. There's an audience full of people. If there's 50 people in the audience, they're going to see 50 different things. Yeah. Because that's everyone, way more important than me being like, eh, say the line this way. Yeah. Because everyone has their own way of interpreting it, as you said earlier. Where can people find out more about you online and about the show? The website for my company is hardlyworkingpromotions.com. And there's an about page, which has information about me and it has my live resume, my LinkedIn, and it has a little blurb, a little bio. If you go to productions and then go to triple bypass, that's got our, it's got our trailer. It's got our program. It's got behind the scenes stills. It has every interview I've done. It has every review. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today. And for listeners who are listening to this, I will speak to you later this week. A little tease there for people who may not follow. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you. This is great. Bye, everybody. Triple Bypass is streaming online at The Space UK, available for you to watch on demand from the 6th of August. And it's absolutely free. Free, free, free for everybody to see.